Thank you guys for all gathering with us today in worship. Now, as Ken read, we're going to be looking at Psalm 19 today. We're gonna be taking a small break from our series in the Gospel of John, uh, but don't worry, we will be back uh, to the Gospel of John next week. So you guys can go ahead and start turning to Psalm 19 in your Bibles or on your tablets or your phones or, or whatever um, way you're going to be looking at God's word. Um, and as you're turning there, I do want to remind you guys, just like the, um, the announcement video said, we are having vision night this Friday at 630, but it's not going to be in this room. It's going to be right over there. And it's going to be an exciting time for us as a church to gather together for the very first time in our new worship space. So mark your calendars next Friday, or this Friday rather, at 630. It's going to be an exciting time to see what God has been doing in and through our church over the past few years and to look forward uh, to what God is going to continue to do in and through our church. So it's going to be an exciting time. So I have a question as we start to look at Psalm 19. And I, it, on the face of it, it might seem like a rather simple question. It might even seem like a, a weird question to ask in a church, but I believe that it has really, really big impact on how we live our lives. And the question is this, how do you view the Bible? What is your view of scripture, God's word? Now, we're gathered together at church, most of us at least claim to be believers. We, on some level, we probably say, well, of course the Bible is important. Of course we, on some level, even intellectually, just might say, of course, it, it's, it's the Bible. Why wouldn't it be important? But what kind of priority do we actually give to God's word? Do we feel the need to read it? Do we feel the need to feast on God's word? Now, I'm going to use this phrase, feasting on God's word. I'm going to use this phrase a few times today, and I want you guys to know what I mean when I say that. When I say feasting on God's word, I mean that we are taking the time to intentionally slow down, to intentionally savor what we're reading in the Bible. We're allowing the Holy Spirit to take what we're reading and nourish our souls and transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ, feasting on God's word. And if you happen to be hungry right now, I'm sorry, there's gonna be a little bit of food talk throughout today's sermon. I do apologize, but at the same time, I don't. Um, so Psalm 19, we're gonna start in verse seven. And as we're looking at, these, at this Psalm, we see that it's generally divided into two parts. Verses one through six, uh, in your Bible, it might have the little um, subtitle that says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, verse one through six is something that deals with what we would call general revelation, where you go to the Grand Canyon, or you go to the ocean, you go on a hike in the beautiful mountains or the woods, or you know wherever in the world you might be, and something inside of you is stirred. There is awe that comes from within you, a longing and a recognition that there is someone that made this beautiful landscape. That's general revelation. It reveals that there is a creator who made the world. But it doesn't tell us much else aside from that. But then when we see the latter half of Psalm 19 in verse seven through 14, we see what's called special revelation, where it's dealing with God declaring who he is and how we are to relate to him. So general revelation, 
declares that there is a God through creation, but it doesn't tell us much else. Special revelation says who that God is and how we relate to him. Does that make sense so far? Okay, so we're gonna start looking at verse seven of Psalm 19. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, right out the gate, what we see from these few verses is that the Bible in and of itself is not an ordinary book. The Bible is not like a normal book that you would go and pick up at Barnes and Noble or even from the little, little book section at Walmart, you know. It's not like a normal book because it's not written just by men and women. It's not merely the words of the men and women who wrote down those words. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit that breathed through those men and women who inevitably wrote them down. And so because of that, we see that God is the primary author of scripture. He's not a secondary author. He's not a co-author. He's not even like some weird ghost writer who doesn't really write the book. He is the primary author of scripture. And as we see that he is the primary author, we see his character and his perfections revealed in his word. So we see that God alone is perfect. He is sure, he is wise, he is right, he is pure, he is clean, he is true, and he is righteous altogether. God's law declares his character to us. It shows us his perfection and it's reflected all throughout God's word. So as we look at, at verse seven, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. It revives us. It brings us life as we learn and grow in knowledge of him. As we feast on it, it revives us. God's testimonies, his covenants, his promises, the things that he has said to us, they are sure we can rest on it they're faithful, they're trustworthy. And because of that, we can be made wise. His precepts, his rules, the ways that he wants us to live, these things are right. And they're not only life-giving, but they bring us joy. Not because we're being good rule followers, but they bring us joy because we are following after the God who has captured our heart. And the commandment of the Lord it is pure and it enlightens the eyes. It, it actually shows us something. It shows us how to live, how to walk in this world. In Psalm 119, we see something very similar where God tells us that the law is a lamp and a light to our path. So it's the same concept. If you're walking on a path in the middle of the night, you can't really see where you're going. You can't see the dangers, you can't see the potholes, the, the roots, the wild animals. You can't see the danger that lurks on the path because of the darkness. But if you have a lamp or if you have something that shows you what's in front of you, a light that exposes the dangers on the path, then you know how to navigate the path safely. And it would be unwise to not use that light. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are true and they are right because once again, it shows us his character, it shows us his perfection. It comes from him and shows his, who he is to us and it reveals his heart for us. The word of the Lord is good and it is good for us because of what it is and who it comes from. So let's look at verse 10. The psalmist says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now God's word, it should be precious to us. It should be sweet to us. It should be valuable to us. But where does this preciousness, where does the value, where does that sweetness, where does it come from? It's, it's not from a, an arbitrary value that, that we give to it. I don't say God's word is valuable and that's what makes it valuable. That's not how that works. It's not from the practical um, abilities or, or the practicality of using God's word. That's not what makes it valuable. It's not even how we can learn how to live rightly. That's not even what makes it valuable. That's not what makes it precious. So where does that come from? I used, to, I used to work at a Christian bookstore called Mardell. If you don't know what Mardell is, it is a Christian bookstore that sells a lot of Bibles, a lot of Bibles. And I was instrumental in selling a lot of those Bibles. I sold cases of paperback Bibles. I sold hardcover journaling Bibles. I even sold $400 goatskin leather Bibles that were beautifully hand-stitched, really nice-looking Bibles. And sometimes these Bibles, once they would be purchased, the customers would say, hey, can you imprint this for me? Can you take hot metal and burn my name into the cover? And I said, okay. And so I would often imprint it and I would always be nervous about imprinting a Bible. Not just because it was possibly a $400 goatskin leather Bible that I didn't want to ruin. And it wasn't because there was a customer who I didn't want to disappoint by messing up their Bible. It was much more than that. I was handling God's word and it was precious. It's valuable. And not because of the material it's made from, It doesn't matter the market value of the material that it's made from. That doesn't give it its value. It doesn't matter if it's the paperback Bible that is used for evangelism or the $400 goatskin Bible. What gives it value is the content and what that content reveals to us, what it teaches us, what it shows us. Now, God's word does a lot of beautiful, precious things but I believe that the most precious thing, the the most beautiful thing, the sweetest thing that God's word does is that it reveals to us Christ in all of scripture, all of it. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so Jesus didn't really come on the scene until the gospels, so I don't really see how he can, I mean, there's a few prophecies in the Old Testament, I guess that point to him, but I don't see how he could be in the whole of the Bible. Jesus himself will tell us that all of the Bible is about him. And Genesis to Revelation shows us the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Christ. And that is the greatest thing that the Bible reveals to us. Now, let's look at Luke 24, where Jesus will tell us 
that all of the word is about him. In Luke 24, the resurrection has already taken place and some of Jesus' disciples have left Jerusalem and they're on their way to a little town called Emmaus. And as they're walking along the road, they are trying to talk about the things that have been happening since Friday, since Jesus was crucified. Well, Jesus, somehow obscuring his identity to these disciples, he comes up and he starts talking to them. And he takes this as an opportunity to teach the disciples about himself. So we're gonna pick up in Luke 24, starting in verse 19. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, what things, what are you guys talking about? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets basically wrote the rest of the Old Testament. So from Moses who wrote Genesis to Malachi, which finishes the Old Testament, the entirety of those authors all wrote about Christ. The entire Old, uh, the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament. The entire Bible is all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, we see Christ foretold, not just in a few spots, but all over. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus in his incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection. In the epistles, we see the life in Christ. And in Revelation, we see Christ in his second coming as the victorious king who comes as the judge to set up his kingdom and to undo all the things that sin had done. Now let's look at a few examples of how that actually plays out in the Old Testament, because this is important. This is, especially if we're not quite sure how this works out, seeing Jesus in all of the Bible. So a few quick examples. You don't have to turn there. They should be up on the screen. I'm just going to kind of go through it really uh, pretty quickly. So in Genesis 22, starting in verse 9, it says, When they, that's Abraham and Isaac, came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mounts of the Lord it shall be provided. Now this is a a text and a story that points us to Christ, that points us to the substitution of Christ for us. Abraham's only son did not die. It was replaced. He was replaced by a ram, by a ram that God himself provided as a substitute for Isaac. Okay, let's turn now. Second example is in Daniel chapter three. Now in Daniel chapter three, we see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you grew up on VeggieTales, Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? Okay, so you guys know the story of Rack, Shack, and Benny, where these three men were taken to Babylon in the service of King Nebuchadnezzar, and they were told they needed to, to bow down to an idol that Nebuchadnezzar had put up Well, these three men, fearing God, refused. And when they were threatened with death, they continued to refuse, knowing that it was better for them to die than to bend the knee to an idol. So as they were thrown into the fiery furnace, something happened. So let's see what happened in Daniel 3, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. He believed in multiple gods. So he misspoke here because the fourth person who was in the furnace with these three men actually had the appearance like the son of God. The pre-incarnate Christ who came to, with his presence, take care of and protect three men who were seeking to follow him, who were being obedient to him. God's presence comes to take care of his people. And then, lastly, in Isaiah In Isaiah 53, this is a fairly common, well-known passage in Isaiah 53 that we often hear around maybe Easter or Christmas time. And let's just see if, if this talks about Christ as well. So in verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When we see Genesis 22, when we see Daniel 3, and we see Isaiah 53, and then we think back to the beginning of our Gospel of John series, where we see John the Baptist who sees Christ and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God who came with his presence to his people to protect us as the God-provided substitute for us to take our sin, to take our punishment so that we can have peace. These are just a few examples of how we can see Christ in the Old Testament, but he is on every page and his majesty and his beauty shines forth wherever we are in the Bible. And this beauty and this glory of Christ that we see, it makes the entirety of the Bible sweet for us. It makes it precious to us because it declares to us something important. It declares to us the glory of our king and it shows us his work on our behalf. It shows his person, his kingship, his divinity, his majesty. God's word is precious to us because of these things. Let's continue in Psalm 19, in verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Like we said earlier, the Bible shows us the snares of this world. It shows us the traps. It shows us the dangers of this world and how we can avoid them. Because our king loves us, our king gives us his law so that we are basically protected from ourselves and our sinfulness. Because something else that the Bible does is it shows us our tendencies towards our sin. It shows us our sinfulness. It exposes our sin to us. And then it also shows us how God desires us to live in this world as believers in Christ. So let's look at both of those subjects really quick. In Galatians chapter five, or I'm sorry, chapter three, Paul is writing and he's talking about the law. He's talking about grace. He's talking about promises that God had made. And so we're gonna look in starting in verse 19 of chapter three in Galatians. Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And let's go down to verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul asks a question in this passage. He goes, why was the law even put into place to begin with? And then he answers this question. It's because of sin. It's because of transgression. Because of iniquity. We were held in check by the law. The law was our teacher. It was our guardian. It was 
something that was trying to essentially keep us out of trouble by showing us and teaching us what sin actually is. But once Christ comes, once faith is on the scene, then we are able to find our justification. Then we're able to find our right standing with God, not based on our obedience to the law. But we find our justification rooted in faith in Christ. And because of that faith in Christ, what Paul is telling us is that we are able to become who we were created to be, sons of God. But now, as sons of God, we don't, how do we live? How do we live differently? Do we live differently? How do we know what to do? Well, God's word shows us and tells us as sons of God what we are to do. Now we're going to go to Romans 7 briefly, where once again, Paul is talking about the law, and he's talking about sin, and he's talking about grace. So we're gonna start in verse seven of chapter seven in Romans. What then shall we say? that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now let's go down to verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then down to verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The law shows us what sin is, but it in and of itself is not sin. It is good, it is holy, it is righteous, what we've been saying this entire time. And Paul, who is the gospel, or who's the apostle of grace, he delights in God's law. And he seeks to serve God's law, but he's not doing it as a means of justifying himself. Because as we just read, what he wrote in Galatians, he knows that our justification is only found by faith in Christ. So then why does he follow the law? Paul follows the law because he seeks to follow it as one who has been freed from that sin. the law exposes the sin, when we find our faith in Christ and our justification in him, then we are freed from that sin and we're able to follow the law as God intended it. God's law is good, it is righteous, it is holy. As we feast on God's word, as we grow in our knowledge of it, we will see and we will learn how he desires for us to live, not as a people that's trying to earn our salvation not as a people that's trying to justify ourselves by the works of the law, but rather we will be people who seek to follow after God as he wants us to. So not only does it show us the sin to avoid the pitfalls of this world, the danger that's out there, but it also continues to show us what we will be transformed into. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to transform us in our sanctification. We cannot be transformed from one degree of glory to another if we don't know what that glory is supposed to look like. We cannot be transformed more into the image and likeness of Christ if we don't know what Christ is like. So let me ask you a question now. Have you ever talked with somebody about who Jesus is, especially around election time? Right, me either. Now, when we tend to to do this and have these conversations, we see a lot of interesting things come out. We see people who think that Jesus is like a Republican. We see people who think Jesus is like a Democrat. We see people who think that Jesus is something like a gun-toting member of the NRA who is a staunch supporter of capitalism. We see people who think that Jesus is actually more like a communist and a hippie. When people think this way, when we think this way, We actually might take snippets of God's word, maybe an anecdote or a part of a story from the gospels, and we twist it ever so slightly. And by twisting it ever so slightly, what we do is we inevitably transform Jesus into our image. Instead of letting Christ transform us into his image. These people think that they know Christ but that is not the biblical Christ. That is not Christ as he has revealed himself to us in scripture. Now a wise person once told me that we cannot claim to know God and we cannot claim to worship him if we don't know who he is. And we can't know who he is apart from him revealing himself to us. God's word is his revelation of himself to us so that we can know who he is, so that we can worship him rightly, not as we want, not as I want, but as God wants. God's word shows us our need for Christ, our need for justification by faith in him. It shows us a light for our past so that we are able to walk and live by faith. And it shows forth the rich and glorious majesty of Christ on every single page of God's word. And because of this word, when we feast on it, when we dwell on it, when we meditate on it, we are able to know God truly. And we are able to learn more and more and more about him. And because of that, God's word is infinitely worth more than any and all gold. And it is sweeter for us than the sweetest of honey. All right, lastly, Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If God's word is a feast that he has laid out for us to nourish us, to fill us up, to show us how we are to thrive in grace, 
How often do we struggle with the goodness of God's word? How often do we say that we're too busy to read it? That we're too busy to sit down and meditate on it? That too, we're too busy to feast on God's word? I know for myself, sometimes I might subtly feel as if I don't really need it to get through my day. I mean, in this room, we are smart people. We're educated folks. We're practical people. We might think we know what's best. We might think we know what's good. We might think we might be able to figure out what's good and what's bad and tell the difference between those two things. We might think we know what works and how to live well. I mean, we've made it this far in life, right? But honestly and truly, what we desperately need is a much humbler view of ourselves and a much higher view of scripture. Because we need to recognize that wisdom does not come from within ourselves and it does not come from our learned experiences. How we get through each day, it's not based on our emotional state of being It's not based on our coping mechanisms. It's not based on how witty or how clever we are, but rather as believers, we have to recognize that we do not rightly know how to live this life. And God, the God of the universe, who alone is wisdom and truth, he shows us how he wants us to live. He shows us how to be human, how to live well. So as we begin to land and finish today, I have three questions for us to think about and reflect on. What are we meditating on? What is it that we are mulling over day by day in our hearts and in our minds? Number two, are we allowing the things of this world to draw our attention away from the rich feast that God has for us in the Bible? Are we allowing the world around us to distract us from God's word? And finally, do we truly see our need to prioritize reading God's word? Do we see the need to feast upon the Bible? Now, you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, wow, I've never, I've never heard that Christ is in all of the Bible and, and I would like to learn maybe more or you're struggling with, with some aspect of, of this topic. We will have our elders available. We'll have our elders down front. We'll have pastors available to talk with you. Our elders have lanyards on and they would love to talk with you and pray with you. Or you might be sitting here today or be joining us online and you might not know why in the world I am so excited about this book or the person that it declares to us. And you might feel a stirring in your heart or a stirring in your soul to learn more about this Jesus or to even taste and see that he is truly good. So if that's you today, once again, we will have our elders available. We will have pastors available or you could even use our, our app to send in a prayer request and we would love to pray for you that way. And as the worship team comes back up, I'm going to take a moment. We're gonna to pray together. We're gonna to thank God for his word. And we're going to pray for those of us that we would have our hearts and minds and our souls stirred towards a deeper love and affection for God's word. 
And then once again, if you're not here, or if you're here and you're not a believer, we're gonna pray for you as well, that you would taste and see that the Lord is good. So let's pray. God, we truly thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have shown us your your character and your heart for us through all of scripture, how you show Christ in his majesty on every page and how you show us as your people how you desire for us to live and walk in this world. God, help us to have a deeper affection for your word. Help us to have a deeper hunger for feasting on your scriptures. God, if we're here today and and we we might not know who you are, we, we might not recognize you as the Christ, as the King, as the Savior, if there's someone here like that today, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would stir their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself so that they too can taste and see that you are good, so that they can declare to you today, you are my God and my King and my Savior. God, continue to stir our affections and reorient our hearts towards you, which is our proper place. Be with us the rest of this service. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.